0: What a great word. If you will, join me this morning in turning with me to the book of Jude. To the book of Jude. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible, go ahead and start in the back. Head to Revelation and go left. And then as soon as you get to the beginning of Revelation, you will get to the end of Jude. We will be reading from the book of Jude this morning. Um, It is going to be kind of... uh, Uh, I'm going to skip a good part of that, uh, and you'll see why, I think, when we get into our sermon and our message this morning, but we're going to be reading Jude 1 through 4, and then I'm going to skip through to verse 17 and read the remainder of, um, of the chapter. As you can see, in the book of Jude, this is only one chapter, so that's the reason I didn't tell you what chapter number. Faith family, this is the word of the Lord. Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. But you, beloved... Ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves upon, uh, I'm sorry, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. Let us pray real real quick. Jesus, we come before you. Even as I read this passage once again and remind myself of all that you've placed here. God, I... I just want to be a church that contends earnestly for the faith that has been handed down from the saints. Aware that there are those who have crept in in our day. That we must be your people holding to the truth of your word displayed in the love of your son. And that God over the next few weeks that as we look at the very foundations of God of reforming our hearts back to the truth You would help us to see you. So would you be glorified? Would you be known? And would we love you? And one another as yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace to you and peace, faith family. This morning, we are going to embark on the beginning of a series. It's going to be six weeks, and it is a series entitled Solus. This entire purpose is to ground us, is to go back and ground us into the root of our faith. Often, in the journey of God's people, there have been seasons of great neglect. There have been seasons of what I would call mission drift. What do I mean by this? What do I mean by mission drift? Mission drift is when we lose sight of the why and the what. Now this is not necessarily intentional, it's not by intention, it's not like we came out and decided to do this one day, but it's out of distraction. And we are a part of a community of faith that we, what we have done in the past few years is we have allowed the mission to get ahead of doctrine, because where there is the missing of doctrine the mission will go off. And now we are beginning to discuss and have an argument on a grand scale, a discussion on a grand scale, is can we continue on a mission when we have lost the very foundation on what that mission is built? And that is why we have come together as elders in choosing this series because what we wanted to do as the as, as the elders of Pine Summit, is not allow ourselves to get distracted on mission from the truths that we are on mission for. And that's why it's called drift, by the way. The reason it's called mission drift is because it's not so much been intentional, I don't think, but it's just in distraction. The, the analogy that I had, I actually wrote this, uh, a part of this uh, introduction uh, while on the beach on my phone. I was sitting on the beach and I was sitting there watching an individual and it reminded me of this idea of drifting. And it reminds me of this because it's like being on the dollar float in the Gulf. You're kicked up. You know the dollar float, right? The float that all of you have hyperventilated on at some point in your life, especially if you're from Pensacola. It's the one that, you know, it has five little things and a little pillow and you get on that thing and half of you are in the water, half of you are not in the water, and you're in the Gulf of Mexico, you kick your feet up on that thing and you're enjoying the sun, only to close your eyes for what seems like a moment, and then you open your eyes and you discover yourselves either a hundred yards offshore or a hundred yards down the beach. Anybody been there? Amen. Right. And now, see, what we tend to do, and I want to ask you some questions for those of you who are Floridians, Pensacolians, for those of you who are not, you have to walk with me in the analogy, I know you might not be used to this. But there is, there, is, there is a thing in the gulf called a toe. It's an undertow that can take you out, and there's also side toes that can take you sideways. I mean, it can take you, I'll never forget, you know, when I was a kid, I used to, my mom used to say, hey, play right there on the break, right? Right there on the break of the waves, and we would sit there and play, and I would, we'd be playing for 30 minutes, I would wake up, and my mom would be 100 and 200 yards down, and I'd have to get out of the water, walk up on the, a beach, go all the way back down, get back to where my mom is, get back in. And it was a constant thing for the next three hours. I was walking back, walking back, walking, and it was just this, right? It was crazy. I always wondered why my mom would let me just get so far away, but apparently she wasn't really that worried about me. So I want you to imagine, real quick, that theologically we are on this dollar float in the middle of the Gulf and we have floated a hundred miles out. Not a hundred miles, hundred yards. Hundred miles, that would be kind of dangerous. 100 miles, you're pretty much done for, right? I don't think we're there yet. I do think we might be 100 yards out, and you're offshore. Can you stay on the float in the hopes of floating back to where you were? Sure. Would you? How many of you who are Floridians, who are Pensacolians, who are used to the Gulf, you're on the dollar float, you're 100 yards out, how many of you, by show of hands, would stay on the float in the hopes... That you're gonna float in. Anybody? No. Why? Because you, that's right. Because I'm gonna use a very southern word here. Pardon me, my French, which is totally English, but I don't know why we say that. But pardon me, you ain't gonna do it. You ain't floating back, yo. So what do you need to do? The usual correction is you need to get up off that float, you need to stop drifting plant your feet in the sand, and make a conscious decision to get back where we need to be. And that is what I have felt over the last few years as Baptist. We have at best experienced mission drift. And I understand Jude here. I get what he is saying. Particularly when he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And that is exactly what my heart has been feeling over the last few years and the few months particularly uh, since some certain revelations have come, uh, come across in our association. There seems to have been... Not only this idea of the necessity to instruct you on these things, but there seems to have been, as he says in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They crept in and we didn't see them creeping in, and it was almost like they have come in and now they are unnoticed. Almost like you didn't even see them coming. And now crazy things are happening and we're sitting back going, where did this come from? So, Baptists, listen to me. Brothers and sisters of the church, listen, I need you to hear me. Don't let this shock you. It was happening in the very beginnings of the church. It's happened ever since then, and it's happening today. It ought not to shock us. These people come in, and they creep in. But in this, there arises a necessity to contend us, to earnestly, to contend, I'm sorry, to instruct us to contend earnestly for the faith which was handed down. And there have been people that have crept in unnoticed, things that have crept in unnoticed, as Jude would put it. So what I want to do is I want to use Jude's structure, if you will, this morning. And I'm going to provide us an overview of the fundamentals and what we're going to do is we're going to take these five fundamentals and we're really going to hammer them over the next five weeks we're going to go into this in the next five weeks you know that i can take a five-part series and make it six parts you know that right i'm very well aware of that so that's what i have done so that's what we're going to do the first thing i want us to do here is notice the contention the contention i want you to notice here that jude states because i'm getting this from him in the word, that Jude states that we are contend earnestly, remember this word, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This word contend earnestly that we have in two words is actually only one word in the original language and this is the only place it's used in all of the New Testament, in all of the scriptures, in all the Old Testament as a matter of fact. It is derived from two words. The one word that we use here says contend earnestly. It is derived from two words. The first is a preposition, which means upon, or on, or by. And the other word is agonizomai. Now listen to me say it, agonizomai. You can hear this word, you can hear our English word, which is what we uh, we translate this from, agonizomai, agonize, agony. So it's this idea that you are going to agonize. I want you to contend earnestly. It's this idea of contending, struggling in spite of difficulties or dangers. Now, although this exact word is not used elsewhere, the word agonismi is. Turn with me to two places. Paul uses it to uh, writing to Timothy. The first place I want to take you is 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 12. Here he says, fight, fight agonizomai. Ah. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you, had made, the good, and you, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Agonizomai, the good faith. The good fight of faith. I like that. Your elders were just talking this morning about starting a fight club here. Agonizamai. We are going to fight for the fight of faith. We want to to grow men who are willing to stand up and contend and struggling in spite of difficulties, in spite of challenges. We want to be these men who will be able to agonize, who are willing to contend earnestly for the faith. The second time he used it was in 2 Timothy. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Beginning in verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is the last letter that Paul would write to Timothy. The right, well, let me say this. The last letter Paul would write, period. And he is writing to him on his, his last days. He is talking about his last days. I've already been poured out as a drink offering. and The time of my departure has come. He's about to die. He's about to be executed. And this is what he said. I have fought the good fight. I have fought agonismi. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have what? Kept the faith. Notice how agonism I is always attached to faith. Fighting for faith. So at the very least, it's an earnest, strong, meaningful, intentional contention. Now the question then becomes, what is it that they are to contend for? And I don't have to speak here because Jude says it. We are to contend earnestly for the faith. The faith that was once and all for all handed down to the saints. So ladies and gentlemen, in an effort to contend for this over the next six weeks, we are going to root ourselves in some foundational pillars of our faith as well as illuminate areas that we as Baptists particularly we're birthed from and we hold on to and the reason that we are Baptists. One of the things that we're going through in our missional community right now is why are you Baptists? Why are you Baptists? Why, why don't you just become something else? Why are we this? So we are going to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and all handed down to the saints. I need you to get this because what we are doing is not rooting us in what Baptists are necessarily today. Did you hear me? I am not rooting us in what Baptists necessarily are today. Because I am firmly convinced, based upon what's happening in the circle of Baptists, is that we here at Pine Summit do not represent many and possibly even the majority of Baptists today. So we're going to ground ourselves in what formed us as Baptists. So coming from the presupposition that Baptists were formally structured following the Reformation, we're going to go back with a little history in order to stand why we are Baptists and to prepare us for the next few weeks of messages that will ground us in the fundamentals of our faith. So that's what I'm contending for. I am contending for the message, the faith which was once once and for all handed down to the saints. The next thing I want to do is take you through a little bit of history. Now for those of you who don't like history, please just be patient with me. It's very important for us to understand this because what I'm about to root us in in the next five weeks is immensely historical and important. But if you don't know why we got it, you won't understand why it's so essential. So I'm, and, I, and I'm going to be honest with you at the very beginning, especially in this because of the time frame that we have, I'm basically going to take a few minutes and I'm going to butcher history with a butter knife. I'm going to butcher history with a butter knife. I'm going to spread butter over vast, swaths of nece, vast, vast uh, places of necessary events in order to co- cover our toast of history, right? That's what I'm going to do. But I want to encourage you to take up where I leave off where I'm giving you, and to butter your own bread. Okay? I'm telling you right now, I've got to, I've got to really broaden our perspective here and, and go over big, big areas that I'm going to miss some things, but I want to encourage you to take this and to kind of do it on your own. The apostolic church, and what I mean by apostolic church, it was the church in which was alive when the apostles were alive. And who were The apostles. The apostles were those men chosen by God who, witnesses, who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. The apostles were those men who formed the foundational church who witnessed the resurrection. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, there are no apostles alive today. So the next time somebody comes up to you and says, I'm Apostle Donnie, you kind of look at them with grace and you understand that they don't know what they're talking about. To be an apostle, you had to witness the physical resurrection of Jesus of the de- from the dead. And if he is an apostle, he's been alive a long time. Get his, get his autograph, right? I'm kidding. Uh, the apostles are gone. This, the apostolic church is during the time that the apostles were alive. And as seen in the New Testament, it was a vibrant community of faithful people that endured tremendous persecution that uh, overcame tremendous uh, difficulties, but in spite of that, God's grace was upon them, and they grew to be a substantial influence on the church. And this church became known as the Apostolic Church. It was the church in which the apostles were alive. It's the church that is written about in the Bible. You can read about it primarily in the, the history of it in the book of Acts. Of course, you know most of the other books were written in that time frame in the New Testament. And in this, the Catholic Church would be rooted in five distinct and equal churches. Now, let me explain this to you very quickly. I'm going to use the word Catholic. Uh, In a few moments, when uh, when we go over the Apostles' Creed, we are going to say that we are a part of the Catholic Church. Ladies and gentlemen, Catholic means universal. We are not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Do you hear me? We are a part of the Catholic Church, which means Catholic means universal, all times, all all of God's people in all of times in all places. Everybody with me on that? So when we come up and we uh, confess the Apostles' Creed, which the apostle uh, has, which was a creed that was formed in the time of the apostles, which is believed to be, then when we say we're a part of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't come until much later. Okay, and we're going to look at some of that in just a few minutes. But what I need you to understand is that we are a part of the Catholic Church. We're a part of the universal church. At this time, at the point of, the, uh, of the, the apostles, and as the apostles are dying, and as we're beginning to see the church grow, the church basically grows in five distinct areas. They become five equal churches. You have the church of Alexandria, which is down near Egypt in the, in the African border. You have the church of Jerusalem, which makes sense. You have the Church of Antioch, which is where Paul would uh, eventually become uh, house's church. You would have the church in Rome, and then you would have the Church in Constantinople. These are the five large churches that are growing over the next few hundred years, and they were equal in size, equal in power Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and alexandria and it, ladies and gentlemen it wouldn't it be it wasn't until the conversion of Constantine that Christianity experienced any cultural acceptance. We were, we were not culturally accepted. We were hated. We were persecuted. But when Constantine, the emperor of Rome, would be quote-unquote converted, whatever that may mean, it all switched very quickly in terms of time. So the, the, the church became uh, from being ostracized and persecuted to being accepted and promoted. And the church would quickly become uh, married to the state. And then eventually, in the Edict of Milan, the church would become the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the church of the state. Romans would now become known as Christians. And now to be Roman would to be Christian, and to be Christian would to be Roman. And now there were some, some things beginning to happen. Because once the church, the state took on the church, now what we have is we have the state and the church together. And they would become closely married. For better or for worse. And what's important here is that being a Roman citizen would then characterize you as a Christian. And then in 612 AD, Islam would come and invade. When Islam comes and invades, they basically clip off the, bot, the southern churches. When they come and invade, the three southern churches are removed, basically, from their influence. What are those churches? Alexandria in Africa, Jerusalem, and Antioch. They are no longer power brokers in the game. Islam has invaded. And now that sets up a bipolar church, right? Two churches, two main churches in power. You have the church in Constantinople, and you have the church in Rome. <clears throat> well, you've got to understand something that happens. Constantine moves the church, uh, the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the government headquarters in Rome over to Constantinople, and now the church in Constantinople begins to take a little bit more power because the Roman government has now moved over to Constantinople, and now Rome and Constantinople kind of get into this into this little power struggle, as you can only imagine. In 1054, these two two will divide into what is called the Western Church in Rome and the Eastern Church in Constantinople. And there are various differences, many differences here, but one, one of the main ones, the reason they divided was over this. And I know you are not going to believe this, but they one of the main arguments was over the type of bread to use in communion. Do we use leavened or unleavened bread? The Western church chose leaven; the Eastern church chose unleavened. And they they split, and it's a big deal. Not only do they split, they anathematize one another and excommunicate each other. So now the, the Western church, the church in Rome, has anathematized the Eastern church, because the western church is becoming more Greek. I mean, yeah, becoming more influenced by, by, uh, by Romans, excuse me. And then the eastern church is more Greek in their orthodox, and so they become more orthodox, eastern orthodox. Okay? So you have the Romans in Rome, western church. You have the orthodox church over in, in the east. So various changes and challenges begin to happen, causing the Western Church in Rome and the Eastern Church in Constantinople to grow antagonistic towards one another. Which, by the way, they anathematize one another and excommunicate each other. What that basically means is the Western Church, if you were part of the Roman Church, would say you're no longer believers. The Western Church would look at the Eastern Church and say because you're a part of the Eastern Church, you're no longer believers. You're anathematized. You're excommunicated. Okay? Now, that was... 1054 A.D. Y'all, it wasn't until 1965 that that was removed. So that lasted a minute. You hear me? These guys didn't like each other. So there were various challenges in this. And then in 1453, Islam comes in and they will evade again. They invade all the way through Constantinople. The eastern church then uh, has to leave this Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church moves and they move north and they move to Russia and they become what is known as the Russian Orthodox Church. Okay? Which leaves what? Alexandria is gone. Jerusalem is gone. Antioch is gone. Constantinople is gone. Guess who's left? Rome. And now they are without any sort of Uh, power struggle they are unrivaled in power and unfortunately the gospel and faith once given by the saints continues to be redefined by the traditions of the roman church for years remember i was i was in 1453 the the church in Rome begins to do some things that they ought not to have done. Uh, 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 by the way, the Eastern and Western church, they begin to do some things that they ought not to have done. Uh, and, and I can go into that, but due to time, I'm going to kind of skip through some of that. Um, until one day, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, October 31st, 1517, we do Halloween. That's why... That's why it's, it's called another name in the church. October 31st, it's called another name in the church. Reformation Day, right? The reason it is is because this is the day, October 31st, 1517, that the, this German monk, who by the way was a part of the Roman church, protests against the Roman church, and he wants to reform the Roman church inside because it had distanced itself from the gospel. So he nails this thesis of 95 objections, which will become called the 95 Theses. He will not nail the 95 Theses to a church door in Germany. Don't let that freak you out. In that day, the church door was the bulletin board, okay? The bulletin board of the community. It was the, it was the newspaper idea of the community. That's where you go, okay? It was, the, it was the Facebook, right? Okay, it was their social media platform, the church door. He would go in and he would nail the 95 Theses up to this door in large part, by the way, in large part his, pro- pro- his protest was over the practice of what's called plena- plenary indulgences. Plenary indulgences. Which, by the way, gave the church or the Pope the authority, listen, it gave the Pope the authority to grant absolution from all sin if you gave enough money to the church. Martin Luther objected to that. And what he wanted to do is to reform the church. And so, eventually, Pope Leo X gets this published thesis. He excommunicates Martin Luther from the church. And this, ladies and gentlemen, began what we know as the Protestant Reformation. That is what it means, the Protestant Reformation. Why are they called Protestants? Because they protested. It's where we get the word for Protestant, protest. We protested. Who do we protest against? Rome. We protested against the Roman church. Why is it called Reformation? Because they wanted to what? Reform the church. What do they want to reform the church to? Back to the apostolic teaching in the scripture that is mentioned right here in Jude. Out of this, the Protestant Reformation, out of this Protestant Reformation, the protest, Reform, would come what is known as five doctrinal distinctives that will become a call of the Reformation. Five doctrinal distinctives that would become the call of the Reformation. We use, Baptists particularly, we use the phrase that came from the Reformation that is called simper reformata. Simper reformata, which means what? Always reforming. Okay? always reforming why do we use that phrase we use that phrase because the church is reformed and it's always reforming because the reformation is never complete we are always reforming what are we reforming to to what Jude says is for the faith which was once all handed down to the saints Ladies and gentlemen, all generations of church must be rooted back to its biblical roots, which is one of the pillars of the Reformation, which is what we're going to get back to. So it's not, what we don't do is we don't root ourselves back to Martin Luther, we root ourselves back to Matthew and Luke. We don't root ourselves back to the Puritans, we root ourselves back to the Apostle Paul. So what we do is we take these foundational doctrines of distinction back to what the Scriptures declare to us. So here's the deal. The church never arrives. We are always going back to study the Word of God and reforming our matters of faith and practice back to that Word. So whatever our practices are in the church, we ought to always be reforming those practices back to what the Scriptures declare to us. That is very, very important. And that is why us Baptists are are kind of a wheel here in the whole Reformation thing. And I'll get into that uh, hopefully a little bit later. By the way, if you want to see where the Baptists came from, uh, in, specifically in from the Reformation and how we got here, all the, going all the way through the Church of England and all the way through the Protestant Reformation. Our missional community will be doing that on Monday night. Tomorrow night, I will be leading in our missional community how we got there. So if you want to come, get with me, get with Terry, get with Mary, get with anybody in my missional community, you can come and you can see how we got to be Baptists, which is going to be very interesting. The point here that I'm trying to make is, in history... The Reformation came because we're always looking back to these matters of faith and practice. All right, so now what I want us to do is what are these five core distinctives of the Reformation that ground us as Protestants and particularly as Baptists? What ground us as Protestants and as Baptists as well? I want to be careful with the particular thing. So let's look at the five pillars that Baptists would have and Protestants, excuse me, would have and Baptists would have traditionally held on to since the Protestant Reformation. Okay? So I'm going way back with us. I'm trying to get us back to saying, okay, what are those things that we have to believe? So here are the five pillars that we have traditionally held on to since the Reformation as Protestants. Pillar number one. Sola Scriptura. Our sole source for authority and truth for matters of faith and practice are grounded in Scripture alone. That means there is no church tradition that over or supersedes Scripture. There is no pastor, no pope, no bishop, no apostle that supersedes the Scriptures Alone, We get our matters, our truth, our source for authority and truth, for matters of faith and practice, are grounded in Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Number two. Sola Christus. We are justified on the basis of the work of Christ alone. Let me say it again. We are justified on the basis of the work of Christ alone. There is none other by which man is able to be saved. No pope, no bishop, no preacher, nobody is able to come in and provide a substitute for us that would be able to stand in the place of Christ alone. We do not, our elements do not stand in the place of Christ alone. Christ has paid the full penalty for our sins. Therefore, when we partake of the elements, we do not come to these elements and say that they are transubstantiated or transformed into a new sacrifice. We do not come to the table with a new sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made. It's Christ alone, church. And I could go into more, but we would that that's a whole sermon. Number three. Sola gratia. Sola gratia. That our justification on the basis of the work of Christ alone is provided and imparted to us by God's grace alone. The Baptist church has been rooted in solo gratia since its very foundation. And we, when we begin to say that our salvation is on the basis of works, something we have to do, we are going against not only our own faith, not only against our own rooting of the belief, but we are going against that faith which is content, that we must contend earnestly for that was handed down by the saints. So, this justification on the basis of work of Christ alone was provided and imparted to us by God's grace alone. Solo gratia. Number four, solo fide. Solo fide. It's appropriated in a personal and effective way by faith alone. In other words, that the only way that our, our justification is given to us, is given to us personally and effectively by faith alone. Church, you are not saved by works. We are saved by faith. We are not saved by the, only, the things in which we can work up. We are saved by grace, solo gratia, through faith, solo fide. And number five, it is all solo deo gloria. All of it is for God's glory alone. There is nothing we do on this planet that is ultimately for our glory. It may be pinned ultimately for our glory, but it's ultimately for His glory. So therefore, There are no matters in the church of faith and practice in which we are doing this for your glory or my glory or anybody else's glory. And that's where churches get a little wonky, where we begin to do it for the glory of one or for the glory of another. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this church is founded on the truth that we are doing this solo Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. These are the five pillars of the Reformation that we as Baptists share with all Protestant churches that have come out of the Reformation, who, which can also be called Reformed churches. I've been asked this question and it boggles my mind. People come to me all the time. Are you a Reformed church? Well, of course I'm a Reformed church. I'm out of the Protestant Reformation. I believe in the five solas. I am, we are a Reformed church. There were and are, they are meant to be, by the way, these five pillars were and are meant to be unifying doctrines of all who would call themselves Protestant and Reformed. So now we're starting to get a little meat on our bones here, right? Now we're starting to go, wait, wait, wait. I can see where I come from. I can get a little bit of, I can, you know, all these, it's crazy to me that all these people who want to do their DNA tests, to find out what their background is, to find out what their lineage is. They want to find out, you know, where do I actually come from? We need, to do, we need to have our own DNA test in the Baptist church to go back to where we came from so that we can know who we are and what we are called to do. Amen? Amen. So these five pillars are meant to bring unity that are meant to distinguish us and those to, who hold to it from who? The Roman Catholic Church. It's meant to bring unity to those who are not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's meant to bring bring a distinguishment from the Roman Catholic Church. It's what binds us together as Protestants. Now, here's what's interesting as the church continued to grow and continued to be reformed, back to this idea of what was earnestly handed down from the faith, the ecclesiological outworking of these five core doctrines has come to distinguish even Baptists among other Protestants. Because, see, the Baptists would come and they would say, wait, if we're going to reform this thing, let's reform this thing. Right? Right? And that's exactly what happened. As Baptists pondered these pillars, we continued through this Reformation to reform back to the faith that was once for all handed by, down by the saints, continuing to be reformed by these doctrines. For example, the doctrines of baptism came from the implications of Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. The idea of us and our baptism, why we baptize and how we baptize, is, was rooted in the idea of us reforming us back due to our keeping with Sola Scriptura and solo Fide. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is because we believe in Scripture alone as our authority in, and in faith alone as to what brings one into a light relationship with God and what makes one a part of God's people, that Baptists in the 1600s said, wait... Our reform hasn't gone far enough. We haven't reformed far enough. We need to continue reforming. So what does the doctrine of solo fide do? It lays the groundwork for Baptists to further reform the church to baptism of believers and not baptism of infants or children of baptized believers. Well, Why? Now listen, this is what my heart is. I believe that we are brothers and sisters with Presbyterians. We are brothers and sisters. We are united as Protestants together. What we would say, now the Presbyterian, one of my best friends is Presbyterian. He would love this message, by the way. What my Presbyterian would say is, man, y'all went kind of wonky with this whole thing. You kind of left the Reformation. So you're really not a Reformed church because you you don't baptize babies. And I would tell him, "Well, we kind of are a part of the Reformed Church. But we just kept going. We just kept reforming, and you guys stayed in some of the Roman Catholic practices." And he looked at me, and he goes, "Oh, pray tell, tell me what you think." And we begin to have this conversation because, ladies and gentlemen, baptism is the outward display of acceptance with God. And its participation is God's people. So therefore, what we would say is baptism shouldn't be given to people just because they are children of believing parents. We should be baptized because we believe by faith. Solo fide is what makes you a part of the church. And because you have now come to believe by faith, and because baptism is the demonstration of that faith, we should only baptize those who are have faith. Well, that makes a little bit of sense. By the way, that's why we, call, we came to be called Baptist, Which wasn't a name we gave ourselves. It wasn't. It's the name that... It was the name that the Protestant church gave us because we start baptizing only believers. And we were persecuted for it by other Protestants, by the way. By the way, we also didn't give ourselves the name Christians. That was also given to us. Right? Christian was actually a name to be derogatory. You're Christ-like, those little Christians. That's the way they looked at it. That's from the book of Acts. Baptist was a derogatory term. Oh, they're Baptists. And because of solo fide, we believe there should be a credible profession of faith before a person receives the sign that is to accompany that faith. Some Protestants, like I said, says, therefore, we're not a part of the Reformed church because we don't baptize babies. Like the Reformers. Luther did, Calvin did, Zwingli did. So until you baptize babies, you're not a part of the Reformed Church, pastor. And of course, what I would say is, no, we believe you haven't Reformed far enough, and these guys didn't either. You're following your practice. What we would say is you're following your practice that is remnant of Roman Catholicism and not of Scripture. Because sola scriptura. Even the Protestants, I mean, even the Presbyterians, you go and you read Presbyterians and they will confess to you that if you were to only read the New Testament of the Bible, you would be unable to validate infant baptism. If all you had was the Scriptures, if all you had was the New Testament Scriptures particularly, you cannot validate infant baptism because there is nowhere in the Scriptures that hold to infant baptism. Nowhere. Nowhere. You have to root it into Old Testament ideas of the way in which the covenant worked in the Old Testament to move into the New Testament. And you can get into that. We can all get into that later. Oh, and by the way, our method of baptism by immersion. Why do we baptize by immersion? And not by sprinkling. Not by unction or pouring. Because of what the Baptists held to sola scriptura. I'm not being ugly, I'm not being mean. I'm being I'm trying to show you how this works out in our distinctives as Baptists. It's because we why do we baptize by immersion? Because the New Testament is is rooted in the Old Testament which indicated that immersion was the form of baptism, not number one. The Old Testament indicates that baptism was the form of immersion. Number two, the first one, uh, the last Old Testament prophet, I'm giving a little hint here to some of my missional community, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, would baptize by immersion. We know that because he actually, it says that they came up out of the water. We know that he was following a, a purification ritual that was founded in the Old Testament. We we also know that not only that but it's a better picture of the faith that follows romans chapter six remember when paul says romans chapter six what does he say when it talks about uh, this idea of 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 salvation listen to what he says he says what shall we say then are we continue in sin this chapter six verse one so that grace may increase may it never be how shall we who died to sin still live in it or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. It's, it's, a, it's a more prevalent picture of what baptism actually looks like. Uh, it's, it's, it's indicated in the Old Testament that immersion was the form. And the word itself, "baptize," means to be immersed. It means to be dipped. "Baptizo." There is no Greek scholar that would, that, that affirms that that denies that "baptizo," by word definition, mean, doesn't mean to be dipped or be plunged. So we hold that we can we are continuing as Baptists to reform, which is why we only baptize by immersion. And we only baptize those who believe by faith. Why? Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. We're sticking with our guns here. And ladies and gentlemen, this entire series is intended to help ground us in the ancient creeds of the Reformation. Which, by the way, young people, I need you to listen to what I'm telling you. Children in this room. The reason that you have not been baptized yet is because you have not professed faith in Christ yet. That's why we preach the gospel to you in this room every Sunday. That's why your pastor is preaching to you because we want you to come to believe in Jesus by grace through faith and it is in the midst of that once you have proclaimed that faith to your mom and to your dad you can then come and validate that to the church through baptism. And we want you to be baptized. God knows that's what we want. So, ladies and gentlemen, we stand on the shoulders. Matter of fact, let me say this. You can go into my office right now, and you will find books from the Reformers all throughout my office. Presbyterians and Baptists all throughout. All throughout. You're going to find books from uh, Luther. You're going to find books from Calvin you're going to find books from Zwingli. You're going to find books from Cox. You're going to find books from uh, all the reformers. All the, all the Baptist reformers, all the, all the Presbyterians reformers. So I say that to say that when I, when I look at this, I understand that I am standing on the shoulders of the reformers. And I am standing, I will stand next to other Protestants that hold to these pillars of doctrines. We are reminded of something that is central and grounding for us and for you as well. And this is what this entire series is meant to do. It's meant to ground us as believers back to what we are contending for uh, to be faithful. So ladies and gentlemen, let me wrap this up by giving an overview because I want to say something to all of you. We are a people and for those of you who are not believers in this room, I need you to hear what I am saying. What the church has said since the beginning of the Scriptures. I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know all of your backgrounds. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what your theological underpinnings are. So first, those of you who are lost, I need you to hear what I'm about to say. Second, for those of you who are believers, I need you to hear what I'm about to say. We are a people, the church, the Catholic church, the universal church. We are a people who are justified on the basis of the work of Christ alone. Sola Christus. Jesus is your only hope in life and death. Jesus is God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. He has come to die the death that you deserve to die. He lived the life that you couldn't live. He has fulfilled all law and righteousness on your behalf. He died and His blood that was shed was on your behalf. He was our substitutionary atonement. He died for us in our place. And I don't care what this world tells you. There are not many ways to heaven. God didn't give us those options. And if He would have given us two ways, you would have wanted three anyway. It's not paths to heaven. I've heard this nonsense for too long. Paths to heaven, ways to heaven, roads to heaven. He didn't give us roads, paths, or ways. He gave us a person. You have to meet the person. You have to meet Jesus. It is through the substitutionary atonement of Christ that we are justified before God and there is no other name under heaven by which I, you or I, can be saved. This is imparted, which means given and gifted and provided to us by God's grace alone. Solo gratia. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't get it. Unless it's by God's grace. There is not a man in here, a woman in here, a child in here, who will stand before God and say, God, look what I did for you without God saying back to you, Son, I did it all. Sola gratia. It is not earned and it is not merited on our behalf. Our justification is a free gift undeserved and unearned. It is appropriated to us personally and effectively by faith alone. solo fide. Our works are are demonstrative of our faith, not for our faith. I don't earn the faith. I have been given the faith, and through that faith, by redemption, by His grace, by His regeneration, I can now therefore do the works that He has called me to do because it has given me, He has provided me the faith in order to provide it and to do it. A faith which is given to us in a way that each of us would be without boasting. We have no right to boast. That's what makes a prideful Christian so pathetic. Because you have no right to boast. You ought to proceed in unbelievable humility, knowing that you were saved by grace alone through faith alone. And understanding that our sole source for authority and truth for matters of faith and practice are grounded in Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. And any and all traditions, as good as some are, they are not the source for truth and authority. Any affiliation and association, as good as they may be, are not worth us throwing away the doctrines that God has settled for us. If any affiliation or association moves away from the core doctrines of faith alone, by grace alone, through Scripture alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone, church, we are to remove our association and affiliation with them, or it, or whoever, because they are no longer part of what we believe. You've got to understand this. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther hammered his 95 thesis to the castle door at Wittenberg. It went viral and it led to his excommunication. Four years later, Luther was summoned to appear before them of what was called the Diet of Worms. They weren't eating. Diet is a meeting. Worms is the location. The meeting at Worms. The diet of Worms. He was asked if the books which were publicly displayed were his. Luther affirmed. He was asked to recant his response. Uh, He was asked to then therefore recant. And here was his response and I quote Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other my conscience is captive to the word of god I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. May we be so bold as we start here And we remind ourselves of these as we seek to be His people living for His glory. And as we continue to contend earnestly for the faith which was once once and for all handed down to the saints. I call you to this truth. As you are sitting here listening to me preach, I am asking Are you justified by faith alone? Are you right with God? What is your standing before a thrice holy God right now? Understanding that we have been given Adam's guilt and sin and that none of us stand before him innocent. We all stand before God guilty. What are you going to do to be justified? What do you think you can do to be justified before God? Do you think you can do enough? Reminding you that justification is not some scales and balances. Justification is law. That you have broken a law. And what is the only thing that can overcome the breaking of a law? Condemnation and punishment. Justice. You deserve death. You deserve God's eternal punishment. I deserve God's eternal. We deserve God's eternal punishment. Why? Because God is holy. He is good. He gave us everything we needed and yet we still rejected Him because He gave us all that was good but we still wanted to know the difference between good and evil. We still reject Him and we do it today. We still reject all that God has for us. Did God really say the serpent has already used? And we just repeat it over and over and over. So I come to you and I ask you, when you stand before God, how are you going to be justified? Look, when I stand before God, I fall on my knees knowing that there is no work that I can do in which I can be saved. I stand before God in the hopes and in the promise that Jesus paid it all. And for all this I know. Right? You see, what is the only thing? If if I owed $100, what is required for that debt? $100. If I owed an eternal debt, what is owed to pay it off? An eternal payment. Who is the only eternal being we know? God himself. So what was required for my eternal debt to be paid? God in some way would have to come and pay that debt for me. That's exactly what he did in Jesus. God became man, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. When I stand before God, I will not stand before him and boast on account of my works. I'm going to stand. I'm probably. I'm going to fall on my face before him and say, "I accepted your son Jesus on that morning at two twenty-four Opal Avenue in the shower." I remember God when I bent my knee and by grace through faith you regenerated my heart. You saved me. And because Jesus died on the cross for my sin I according to your word have now been justified. And I come with you with hands empty having nothing to bear for my justification. The only thing that I bring to you is gifts of thanks. Gifts of gratitude. Things that you have bestowed upon me that I will now lay at your feet. Crowns that you have given that I may now lay at your feet so that I, dear God, will be able to stand before you because of your Son Jesus and because of the empowerment of His Spirit that He has given me. Let me ask you again, church. Let me ask you again for those of you who are here. If today were your last, would you stand before Him justified? Will you please stand to your feet? As we respond to the preaching of God's Word and to the look at our justification by faith, by grace through faith in Christ revealed in Scripture for His glory. We come to this place and now we respond. We respond, we always, every Sunday morning, we come to respond to this message. For those of you who are in here who are lost and unbelievers, we call you to baptism. For those of you who have, not, who have followed, in Christ, followed Christ in faith, we call you to be baptized. We call you to be dunked beneath the water and to be brought back up to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. To, to the, your testimony, your confession of faith is your baptism. It is your proclamation that you now believe and trust in Him as Christ. And that's what we call you to. For those of us who are believers, we will lead you to the table, to the Lord's Supper, because we want to be reminded every Sunday it is not by our works, it's by Jesus. And the elements that come that the reminds us of His body and His blood draw us back to our hope, draw us back to our justification. It draws me back to the fact that I, I could have done nothing to earn it nor deserve it, therefore I can do nothing to lose it or end it. For if, if, my father ha- if, if the Father has called me he will be faithful to the end. And because of that, I come and I participate in these elements reminded. So if you are a baptized believer, if you're in here and you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to call you to participate in the Lord's table with me. If you are not, if you are lost in this place, please know we love you. We care for you. We will preach truth to your soul. We will love you even if you, dis, even if you don't uh, 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 agree. But we ask we ask that you not participate in the Lord's Supper because this is a supper that is meant for those...